Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that this month's podcast is sponsored by Massimo. Pulse oximetry is a commonly used monitoring technology for assessing oxygen saturation and pulse rate. But for many years, traditional pulse oximetry was plagued by unreliability when it was needed most, during patient motion and low perfusion. Massimo overcame this challenge with Massimo Signal Extraction Technology, or SET. With its ability to measure through motion and low perfusion, Massimo SET has opened new frontiers in patient monitoring during challenging conditions, helping clinicians improve patient outcomes. Visit Massimo.com to learn more. And now, let's hear what is in the September issue of the journal. Hello, and welcome to the September Respiratory Care Editor's Commentary and Podcast. This is Rich Branson. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. Thanks for joining us. This month's Editor's Choice is a paper by Tizaminski et al. evaluating ventilatory ratio as a predictor of mortality in subjects with ARDS undergoing prone positioning. They measured driving pressure, PO2-FIO2 ratio, arterial CO2, and ventilatory ratio, which is defined as the minute ventilation, and PCO2 divided by the predicted body weight times 100 milliliters per minute times 37 on normal PCO2. In a cohort of 156 subjects, the mortality rate was 53%. They found that in the, the fall in ventilatory ratio at 24 hours was associated with lower mortality, while other physiologic parameters were not related to ICU mortality. Siegel and others contributed another paper looking at ventilatory ratio, they studied the prognostic value of ventilatory ratio in subjects with ARDS. In a single center observational trial, they recorded ventilatory ratio, Apache 3 score, and the severity of shock as measured by the number of vasopressors required at baseline. In 50 subjects, they found that ventilatory ratio significantly improved prognostic value of the other predictors. So the addition of ventilatory ratio to Apache 3 score improved the prediction of outcome. They suggested that ventilatory ratio, when combined with indicators of systemic illness, improved mortality prediction. Louis Blanc, an editorial board member, and, and his colleagues comment on these two papers, evaluating the use of ventilatory ratio. They suggest that the ventilatory ratio is a good global index of the efficiency of lung gas exchange. Ventilatory ratio is closely related to the dead space to tidal volume ratio, which has been shown to be a predictor of outcome in ARDS. The advantage of ventilatory ratio is that it doesn't require the measurement of exhaled CO2. It is essentially a measurement that normalizes um, the PCO2 for the minute ventilation. Lacasse and coworkers developed a simulation model to evaluate cost effectiveness of in-home respiratory therapy visits for subjects receiving home oxygen therapy. The primary outcome was a ratio of incremental cost per quality adjusted life years or qualies gained. They report that over a five-year period, the extended home visit program might prevent nine deaths and add 39 years of life and 24 quality-adjusted life years. The incremental cost was $17,000. Typically in these kinds of studies, anything less than $50,000 is considered a win. They concluded that the extended in-home visit model could improve adherence to home oxygen therapy and improve cost-effective. Michael Hess advocates in his editorial for in-home respiratory therapy visits for all patients on home oxygen therapy. 
He notes that the goal of home oxygen therapy is not just to send the patient home, but return them to normal activities, and argues that the recent competitive bidding system has failed to consider patient quality of life. He suggests respiratory therapy home visits could improve oxygen therapy and also aid in patient understanding of their other therapies, how to use the meter dose inhaler, how to use their bronchodilators, how to make sure that they're monitoring their, their progress. Uh, Mike makes an interesting point that if we treated patients with prosthetics for a lost limb, you know, lost leg, the way we treat home oxygen therapy, the prosthetic would be on a 50-foot circuit, and once the patient went 50 foot from the home, they couldn't, they couldn't use it anymore. Oxygen is just as important to the patient who has COPD. Golwadal performed a multi-center retrospective review of subjects with COVID-19 requiring ICU admission in a large urban health system. In a cohort of 634 subjects, 70% were managed on low flow oxygen, 17% on high flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation or both, and 9% were underwent invasive ventilation. They found that higher workloads in the ED, older age, and the presence of comorbid conditions increased the risk of invasive ventilation, more likely to be intubated. With increased workload, they also showed that subjects were six to eight times more likely to be initially managed with either high flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation. I think this study is important for two, two reasons. One is that most patients with COVID-19, not the ones with severe hypoxemic respiratory failure, but most patients were managed with conventional oxygen therapy successfully. But when things get busy, patients often get less invasive therapy because there isn't time um, or people to provide mechanical ventilation. Zing and others evaluated respiratory system compliance and oxygenation indices in a cohort of trauma subjects with pulmonary contusion to determine the impact of pulmonary contusion on lung function. In 301 invasively ventilated trauma subjects, over half had severe pulmonary contusion. The mean duration of ventilatory support was 10 days. Subjects with hypoxemia had progressive hypoxemia, worsening hypoxemia, through five days of invasive ventilation. Severe pulmonary contusion was associated with worse oxygenation indices, even when corrected for blood and fluid administration. They concluded that pulmonary contusions play an important role in the course of acutely injured subjects requiring mechanical ventilation. This has been a point of contention recently where in a lot of cases, pulmonary contusion, we used to say blossoms at 48 hours, was thought to be caused by the iatrogenic excess fluid administration, especially with crystalloid. Um, so this tempers that enthusiasm for that idea, but still suggests pulmonary contusion and how patients are resuscitated are important. Panareth et al. evaluated non-invasive ventilation using pressure control breaths or adaptive pressure breaths in subjects with ALS. Subjects were studied for one week and data were downloaded from the ventilator. They found no difference in respiratory therapy visits between the two modes, but found improved adherence with standard pressure control ventilation. Adherence improved with time, and there was no difference at six months. They also found higher residual apnea hypopnea index and fewer spontaneously triggered breaths with the adaptive pressure mode at six months. They concluded that adaptive pressure breaths required more time for subjects to adapt to the breath type and may result in greater upper airway stability in ALL subjects with ball bar disease. Cater and others evaluated non-invasive ventilation use prior to intubation in a cohort of pediatric subjects following bone marrow transplant. They performed a retrospective multi-center study over five years in 211 subjects. Subjects initially exposed to NIV were diagnosed with respiratory distress 
more often had higher ICU mortality and fewer ventilator-free days. They also had higher rates of pediatric ARDS. They concluded that in this cohort, non-invasive use prior to intubation was associated with poor outcomes. Gurn and others performed a bench study of the effect of high-flow nasal cannula devices on the worker breathing in a lung model. They tested seven devices at flows from 20 to 60 liters per minute with three different simulated efforts and two breathing frequencies. They found only small differences in device performance, mostly related to how much PEEP was developed and very small changes in worker breathing, which are likely clinically unimportant. I don't think these findings are that surprising um, with the, the major difference being the flow and the fit of the nasal cannula. Moretto and colleagues performed a retrospective observational trial of study subjects receiving high-flow nasal cannula or CPAP on the general wards over a year. The majority of these patients received CPAP and half had either cardiogenic pulmonary edema or pneumonia. Subjects were managed on the general wards by a rapid response team over a mean of three days. Pressure injuries from device interfaces occurred in 13% of subjects and subjects who were less than 80 years old had longer hospitalizations and decreased mortality versus those who were greater than 80 year old. The authors concluded that non-invasive ventilation and CPAP on the ward was safe and effective. This is another trial from Europe where during the treatment of hypoxemic respiratory failure, CPAP either by mask or commonly with the helmet is, seems to be far more common than it is in the US where it seems like most clinicians go straight from oxygen therapy or high flow nasal cannula to non-invasive ventilation. And I think it's something we need to think about again because CPAP treats hypoxemia non-invasive treats, ventilation treats hypercarbia. Lelouch et al. described the performance of heated humidifiers and the impact of increasing the heater plate temperature on delivered humidity. They measured heater plate temperature, inlet temperature, and delivered humidity at minute volumes of 5 to 15 liters per minute. They found a positive correlation between heater plate temperature and delivered humidity. Heater plate temperature greater than 62 degrees Celsius was a good predictor of absolute humidity greater than 30 milligrams of water per liter. They suggest that heater plate temperature be monitored and can be used as a surrogate for adequate humidity and improved humidification monitoring. Raft and coworkers compared arterial cannulation success in a model using standard palpation and ultrasound guidance in a randomized crossover study. Subjects were trained on ultrasound guided technique with a low blood pressure, palpation guided technique with a high blood pressure, and a secondary comparison with low blood pressure. All subjects were naive to arterial cannulation. Ultrasound was associated with greater cannulation success for subjects performing their first arterial cannulation. There were no differences in the time to successful cannulation. O'Doherty and others surveyed subjects with cystic fibrosis regarding the adherence to aerosol therapy and nebulizer cleaning regimens while traveling. Of 68 respondents, 38% indicated they did not continue aerosol therapy while traveling, which is a, a disturbing finding. Of those who continued aerosol therapy, 43% cleaned the nebulizer with soap and water, 18% used boiling water, and 2% didn't clean the nebulizer until they returned home. They concluded that nebulizer care and hygiene is suboptimal during travel in these patients with cystic fibrosis. MRSA and others provide a short report on predictors of treatment success in subjects with COVID-19 undergoing what we are starting to call awake prone positioning, but prone positioning in non-intubated patients. In this retrospective post hoc analysis, they found that greater PO2 FiO2 ratio prior to prone positioning and improved PO2 FiO2 ratio at day two were associated with avoidance of invasive ventilation. So, patients who are doing better oxygenation wise 
tend to do better and improve at two days. Patients who have more severe hypoxemia are less likely to respond to prone positioning um, without intubation. Damiani et al. contribute a short report on the impact of reducing ventilator rate in subjects with COVID-19 and hypoxic, hypoxemic respiratory failure. In subjects with COVID-19 associated ARDS, respiratory frequency could be reduced while maintaining adequate pH and PCO2 at a decreased minute ventilation and mechanical power. This is an interesting study that takes advantage of um, prolonging expiratory time and perhaps improving alveolar ventilation despite the fact that minute ventilation has been reduced and has the advantage of reducing mechanical power associated with lung injury. Baran and others contribute a systematic review of high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation in COVID-19. They included 19 studies that included 3,606 subjects. Non-invasive ventilation was associated with a greater improvement in PO2 FIFA ratio compared to high-flow nasal cannula, but intubation rates and hospital length of stay were similar. Now remember, non-invasive ventilation I just said was better for hypercarbic respiratory failure, but with the use of PEEP, non-invasive ventilation can also improve hypoxemia. They found no difference in mortality between high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation in a subgroup of randomized controlled trials. An accompanying editorial by Lowell provides an, a, a discussion of the importance of well-designed and properly executed clinical trials and how that impacts the veracity of meta-analysis and systematic reviews. Evans and colleagues contribute an AARC clinical practice guideline on capillary blood gas sampling in the neonatal and pediatric population. This work provides evidence-based best practices for safety and efficacy of capillary blood sampling. We appreciate you listening to the podcast and look forward to speaking with you again. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. 